You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We've been in the book of James, and what we talked about the last couple times that we've studied it is, this is a book that's been, that's been written to Jewish background believers. One of the keys to really understanding the book of James is to understand the context that the author is talking to people who are coming from a certain religious background with certain expectations and understandings about the Old Testament and God's law. And the thing that James is really trying to do here is he's trying to answer the question of what does it look like to live and grow into a mature Christian faith? What, what does? Everybody's a new Christian. There are no people who have been Christians for 50 years in this community because Christ has just come. And so what does it look like to live out your faith and grow and be be spiritually mature? And last time, about three weeks ago, we talked about the mature approach to trials, that he said, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of attitude and perspective, that we understand that God is a part of all aspects of our lives and that he will allow difficult things to happen and difficult times to come. And that happens whether we're a Christian following God or not. And our ability to withstand those things and grow from those things and, and, and be honed by those things is entirely dependent on our approach, our willingness to trust God's goodness and sovereignty even when things are going bad. And that the key, James says, is to endure, is to not give up, not give up hope, not give up faith in the midst of very painful and difficult ordeals. And so we get to chapter 1, verse 12, and he says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. He's continuing the same train of thought. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Wow, there's a lot there. He says, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting or shadow. And in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that he would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So one of the things when you're trying to interpret the Bible, when you're trying to understand what is the Bible saying You know, you want to get into what does the author mean? What is the intent? When James sat down to write this, and you want to get into, we talked a little bit about this before, the importance of the historical background, the audience, the occasion. Why are they writing the letter? Who are they? they, Where are they coming from? Another really helpful tool in doing good interpretation is called asking the strategic question, why say this here and how does it relate to what was said before it? We're just saying, you know, okay, 
we've been talking about this idea of trials, and now all of a sudden, very abruptly, shifted gears into temptation. What's the relationship between those two things? What's the connection? And so the author's flow of thought and why they make those decisions can help us hone in on and grab what, what do they mean? What are they saying? Well, trials require faith and perseverance. We just learned about that a couple of weeks ago. James was very clear on that. But also, temptation requires faith and perseverance. And in fact, if we think about it, temptation is often riding right on the coattails of a trial. That the two often go together. So when he starts out verse 12 and says, blesses a man who perseveres under trial, he's sort of ending what he said about trials and then moving into temptation because if you're going to talk about trials and being victorious and living and being mature in your faith through a trial, then you better be ready for temptation. And that's exactly the flow that James is using here is he goes right into understanding that temptation often comes in the midst of trials. Trials, hardship, whether they're physical or psychological or emotional, they have a way of weakening our resolve. There have been some really interesting studies in psychology on how willpower is an exhaustible resource. And what they find is they put people through tests like they'll put them in a room and they'll put a big plate of cookies and a big plate of radishes in front of them, right? And, they'll, and to the control group, they'll say, eat as much of whatever you want. And of course, people chow down on the cookies, right? But to the others, they say, you know, make responsible choices, right? And so they stay away from the cookies. Then they bring in another trial, another temptation. And what they find is, that people eventually break down. It's an exhaustible resource that has to be refilled. And when you're in the midst of a trial, you are expending a great deal of willpower to persevere, to endure, to have the right perspective. And so that exhaustible resource can begin to get low, and that's where temptation can really come in. Trials make us want to seek easy answers. How do I get out of this? Is the first question, is it moral? Might be the second or third question. <laughs> How do I make the pain stop? Is often the more important question. It makes it easy in the midst of a trial to desire a shortcut that can ease your pain. Just make it stop. I'll deal with the regret later. Right now, I just want relief. Doug Moo, in his commentary on James, writes, Every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation, an inner enticement to sin. God may bring or allow trials, but he is not, James insists, the author of temptation. Enticement to sin comes from our own sinful natures, not from God. But if you're going to talk about trials, then you really need to talk about temptation as well. Physical and emotional pain has a way of clouding our thinking and, and obscuring our judgment. 
our ability to hold fast in the midst uh, of, of a trial and to say, okay, I'm going to go with not the easy thing, not the comfortable thing, but the right thing can be very tested in the midst of that. I see that all, all the time, working with people working with people who are in various situations and various trials. One of the ways I really have seen it manifest itself is in divorce. I've heard it so many times. So many people have said to me, you don't know, I've been married for years. I'm so unhappy. I'm so miserable. God could not be loving and want me to stay married. People begin to cloud their thinking. And, you know, you'll ask questions. Well, are you being physically abused? Are you being cheated on? And they're like, no, my spouse is just mean. And you're like, okay, I don't think being a jerk is a divorceable offense according to the Bible. That doesn't justify, it doesn't make it right, it doesn't make it good. But when you read your Bible and you see God hates divorce. And he says things like the only reason to get divorced and remarried is because the marriage contract has been broken through adultery and then you just are in a situation for years where somebody is not coming through and they're not kind and they're not gentle. Your thinking really begins to shift towards what you want and not what God says. And that kind of trial can be very challenging. It happens in all kinds of ways. People who are on drugs, who are, are looking to sex for comfort, who are looking for comfort from things. They, they'll say, you know, I'm unhappy and this brings me some reprieve. This thing brings me some sense of relief, some sense of, of, of salve for my pain. How could a good God want to deny me these things? And the answer is, of course, that God wants good things for you, and he knows that these things actually make things worse. In the moment, we feel and believe that we will get relief, but in reality, we are going further and further down a rabbit hole, digging a hole for ourselves that's going to make our life worse. That's how temptation and sin work. But when you're in the throes of it, in the middle of it, it's so tempting to just suspend our, what we know to be true about what God has said and just allow ourselves to be confused. A lot of us in the midst of those kinds of trials go into binary thinking, very black and white thinking. We say, you know, okay, I'm in pain, I am suffering, and my job is to fix this problem, and I can't do anything other than fix this problem. So helping other people is out. Being concerned about the needs of others is out. All I can do is focus on this one thing that's causing this pain. It's completely human, completely natural to allow yourself to drift into that kind of thinking. It's legalistic thinking. But this is not what Mature spirituality, mature Christianity does. It holds the truth, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, and especially in the midst of temptation. 
This is what James is trying to help his audience see is that we need to cling to God and his strength and his word and his power in the midst of these things because it's so easy to go astray. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. It's like he understands what it's like to be in the middle of a desperate trial and to be tempted to an easy answer, and we may be so confused and so blurred in our thinking that we even say, God, why are you tempting me like this? Why would you do this to me? And he says, nope, that never happens. God is not the source of your temptation. He's incapable of being tempted and will not entice anyone to sin. So he takes that excuse where we might want to shake our fist to God and takes that right off the table. But it also kind of opens an interesting theological discussion Because the Bible needs to be consistent with itself if it's the Word of God. And if you've read much of the Word, you read that and you're like, hold up. God cannot be tempted, yet I'm pretty sure Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? Can or cannot God be tempted? Our passage, God cannot be tempted by evil, okay? Hebrews 4.15, which is about Jesus Christ, who the Bible clearly says is God, says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is God. God cannot be tempted. Jesus was tempted. My Bible is lit professor is applauding right now because this must be one of those many biblical contradictions I heard so much about in college. Is there a way of understanding this? Is there a way of resolving this? We need to be able to understand this because the Bible needs to be consistent with itself. And it is very understandable in the larger context. The Bible makes no attempts to hide the fact that Jesus was tempted. Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. One of the more famous events in Jesus's life was when he was tempted. Hebrews is telling us that when we are in the midst of temptation, we can trust that God understands because Jesus was tempted just like we are tempted. And yet James is saying, God cannot be tempted. Well, what James is saying is, God the Father cannot be tempted. That in the Trinity, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are all one, and yet different. And I believe the reason that God the Father cannot be tempted is because one of God's attributes is omniscience. And what that means is is that he knows all things. And if you know all things, then you cannot be deceived. And you cannot misunderstand. You cannot be tricked. You know everything. 
And what power would temptation have if you know absolutely without a doubt all the possible income outcomes of your behavior? There's no ability to deceive God the Father because he knows everything, therefore he cannot be tempted. Jesus, on the other hand, could be tempted. It says he was tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. But it also says that Jesus limited his divine attributes. Theologians call this the kenosis. It just means the emptying. But Jesus was all-knowing, but chose to limit himself when he took on a body and related to us. And that could be hard for us to grasp because we're like, how can you be all something and then limit yourself, right? But the easiest way to understand that is to think about, it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1. So Jesus existed before he was born by Mary He was there from the very beginning with God. He is God. But he took on flesh. So Jesus was omnipresent. He was everywhere, just as God the Father is everywhere. But he limited himself by taking on flesh. Jesus is no longer omnipresent because he has a body. He limited himself. And in the same way, he limited himself from being everywhere. He limited himself from knowing everything. Look at Philippians 2, 6, and 7, talking about Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here it is. The Bible is explaining to us the dynamics of kenosis. Jesus is God. Everything that's true about God is true about Jesus, but Jesus limited himself so that he could dwell among us. And we have further evidence that this extends to his omniscience when we look at Matthew 24, 35, and 36. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And he's talking about the end times And he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So clearly, there's stuff that the Father knows that Jesus doesn't know, which clearly means Jesus limited himself in his omniscience, thus opening the door for temptation. Jesus can be tempted, God the Father cannot be tempted. And that fits with the greater picture of what we see the Bible describing to us and the dynamics of the Trinity. Jesus had limited knowledge. So he had to make choices without knowing all the possible outcomes of what those choices would be. But he did have what we have, which is the Word of God. So Jesus could be tempted... Yet without sin, that gets to the next very interesting question that very much relates to what James is talking about. Is temptation sin? I think a lot of us act as though temptation is sin. We feel tempted. The idea of 
sinning or doing something against the character of God comes into our minds and we're like, oh man, you know, here I am under temptation again, failing again. You know, we think about verses like this where Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And I'm like, I remember being in college, a single man walking around on the oval in the spring and really wrestling with this verse. You know, get diving deep into the, 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 the dynamics of what is temptation. Like, you're walking along, there's a beautiful girl in a bikini sunbathing herself. And you notice that. Is that sin? Right? Because my understanding of, of, of doing evil, culpable evil, is there has to be a choice. You have to choose something that's bad. You can't just have bad things happen to you and then God be like, whoa, that was bad. So you're walking down the oval as a single man in the spring with people sunbathing and you notice beauty. Are you in sin? I remember being like, God, I'm not even married. How am I committing adultery? Help me out here. But notice what he's saying is he's talking about lust. He's not saying noticing. He's not saying appreciating. And then we get into the fine dynamics of <laughs> your wife catches you looking over your shoulder and you're like, I was just appreciating the beauty. <laughs> but there is a dynamic here that's important because we are told Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. And we're told, though, that our thoughts can be sinful. So where do we draw the line between this is something where you can be tempted, and now you've gone from theoretical temptation over to outright rebellion against God? And that's an important thing to explore. And thankfully, James... Our passage this morning is the best, in my opinion, passage for understanding the dynamics of what I'm talking about. He really delves quite deeply into this in a way that's very helpful. Let's read it again. Each one, he says in verse 14, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. What a grotesque picture this actually is. Don't skip over the horror show of what we just read. You get tempted, not a sin. You get enticed, not a sin. It becomes lust. Then, Lust gives birth to sin, and sin kills you. Do you understand the imagery of what he's saying here? It's literally out of a horror movie. Lust <laughs> gives birth to sin, and it murders you. But the order of operations here is very important because it gives us dynamics and now this question of at what point, how do I think about temptation and how do I delineate between what's temptation and what's rebellion against God? And he gives us four aspects of this temptation. He says there's enticement. That's that you notice. 
and you're interested. Then there's desire. You want to take more of this in. And then the desire becomes lust or sin. And at that point, you've crossed the line. A line that says, Jesus didn't cross. Jesus understood enticement, just as we do. He understood desire, just as we do. But lust goes over into, I want this more than I want God. This is now more important to me than what God says or who God is. And that's the line that Jesus didn't cross. And then, of course, Once sin occurs, then death and destruction. And all of this, James says, this whole process is a form of deception. You cannot sin in temptation without being deceived. And what we do see is actually there is a lie at the root of all temptation. It is a form of deception. And what I would like to do is I would like to go over with you four case studies on temptation. And you can see exactly the dynamics that James has laid out happening in real time. Let's start with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everybody's naked and unafraid. And they're hanging out. And there's no sin, and there's no evil, and everything's beautiful, and everything's wonderful, and there's no shame. Everything's going great. And God says, listen, there's one thing. There's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you're not allowed to eat from that. Everything else is open to you and free for you, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so everybody's going along. Things are humming along just fine. And then the serpent shows up. He's hanging out in the tree, and he's like, hey, Adam, Eve, come over here for a second. And they're like, hello. And they're like, why don't you eat? He's like, why don't you eat some of this fruit? And they're like, oh, God said we can't eat that, or we can't even touch it. We'll die. And the serpent says to the woman, God's a liar. You will not die. God has told you you will die, but you will not die. If you eat of this fruit, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, the second you bite this, your eyes will be opened. You guys don't understand. You have been living in ignorance and darkness, which is how God wants you to live. And if you listen to me, God's warned you about this because he wants you to be dependent on him, but you can be free like I am free. All you have to do is trust me, take a bite, and you will be like God which is what God doesn't want, knowing good and evil for yourself. Do you see the lie? The lie is contravening the word of God. And then it's even more insidious because not only does he contradict what God has said, but then he raises an accusation against God himself. God is trying to hold you back and doesn't want you to be happy for his own sick purposes. And they're like, huh, that's an argument we hadn't considered. Now, as they contemplate what he's saying, are they sinning? No, they're being enticed. They have not yet rebelled. The enticement is, 
you, if you listen to me and do what I'm saying, will be like God. And it's like, I'm sorry, but every Christian wants to be like God. That's what we've been told that we're supposed to do, isn't it? To be like Christ, to be conformed into the image of his son, that the ultimate goal of spiritual maturity is to be and reflect the nature and character of God. This is just a shortcut. All I have to do is eat the fruit and I'll be like him. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, has she sinned? Is it a sin to desire to be wise? Is it a sin to desire a delicious fruit? Is that contradicting the character of God? God wants good things for us. God made fruit delicious. God wants us to be wise. Her desires are not evil until they became lust. At the moment that the corruption occurred, lust came because the desire to be like God, the desire to eat the fruit that looked delicious, and the belief that God was wrong became stronger than the desire to follow God. I would rather rebel and reap this harvest than be connected and close to my creator. And it was the moment the decision went from, I'm considering it, I'm contemplating it, to I'm going to do it. That the lust conceived sin, which did kill them spiritually. Let's look at another one, another case study. Cain, one chapter later, right? Cain and Abel, two brothers, they both give an offering to God. They don't know why. There's not like, you know, the rest of the Bible hasn't been written, but, you know, apparently Abel was a good guy. He loved God, and he was like, you know, I want to share what I have in my labor and the first fruits. I, I, in faith, offer to you, God, some of my flock. And God, like, that's amazing. That's so cool that you, like, you want to be saying thank you to me. And then Cain, his brother, is like, me too. I want to give you stuff, but it's not from faith. It's not from this desire to be close to God. It's because his brother did it. And it says that God had regard for Abel in his offering, but did not have regard for Cain. And that Cain got upset by this. He got angry at his brother. He was jealous, and he began stewing. And it says, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. I love that description. You see this in children. You can see it in adults too, but you can really see it where where your your kid is mad and pouty and they're just like, "Mm." their whole body is just like, you can tell what's on their heart. And God's looking at Cain and Cain's doing this. And God says to Cain, hey, hey buddy, why are you mad? Why are you angry? And why the little birdie perch? Your countenance is fallen. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? You got to turn this 
this thing I'm watching happening with you, Cain, is heading in a very dangerous direction, and you got to turn the ship here, man. This thing is not good for you that you're doing. And if you do not do well, he says, sin is crouching at the door. I love that. You know, what would happen if you opened the door and somebody was on the other side of the door like this, <laughs> right? You're like, shut the door. Sin is, it's like this idea of this, this again, you know, lust has conceived of this monster sin who wants to kill you and that is crouching at your door. But it does not yet have you, does it? That's the whole point of the warning. It's saying, you got a situation here, Cain, and it's not too late to do the right thing. It's not too late. But you have a battle that you have to fight, and I want you to fight it. I want you to engage yourself in this. The enticement is, my brother made me look bad, and therefore, I want to eliminate him, is the consideration. The enticement. How can I stop my brother from showing me up and making me look bad? What are my options? I could kill him. And God comes in and says, it's not too late for you, Cain, as you're considering your options. But you are in the throes of a battle that I want you to win, which must mean it's winnable. Consider what's happening to your countenance, Cain. Consider the fact that sin is crouching at your door. And have faith. What do you think would have happened if Cain would have been like, I don't know, God, how to take this hatred for my brother and let it go. Will you help me? Do you think God would have said, mm, that's on you, bro? Cain told Abel, his brother, hey, let's go for a walk in the field. And it came about where they were in the field. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. The first murder. Rebellion against God. Enticement. Break it down and look at what, what happened here. Cain was hurt. Being hurt's not a sin. Having your feelings hurt, being upset. He was considering lashing out at his brother. He hadn't decided to do it yet. And it's at that point that God intervenes and says, you are at a critical phase right here. Remember the question that we're asking, at what point does temptation become sin? Is being tempted, Cain was tempted to murder his brother, but he had not decided to do it. And God said, freeze. This is where the battle is fought, right here. And this is what you have to understand. And this is what James is saying is mature Christians have to understand this is the point where the battle is won or lost. The enticement, the desire is not yet lust. And what are you going to do when you're in the throes of that battle like Cain? What is the answer? The third case study would be Jesus. Matthew 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. It's early in his ministry. And it says that 
in verse 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. My guess is he became hungry before then. But we'll allow the author some license. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So we can apply the dynamics of temptation that James has given us here. And we see this particular temptation came in the midst of a trial. He's hungry. He's really, really hungry. And the enticement here, the idea... The lie is that Jesus has something to prove. The evil one, Satan, shows up and says, yeah, everyone's talking about you. They say you're the son of God, the Messiah. But, you know, you haven't really done anything to show us. I'm uh, one who looks for objective reasons for things. And, uh, frankly, I've been watching you, and I'm unimpressed. And I realize you're super hungry. Here's a win-win, Jesus. Why don't you turn those stones into bread? Then I'll know you're the Messiah and you can have something to eat. Huh? You need to prove yourself to me, Satan says. And apparently, because he was tempted, Jesus was like, man, I really would like to turn those stones into bread. It's been 40 days. I'm really hungry and I should consider whether or not that's a good idea. Not being omniscient, it's entirely possible that he, was, he could smell fresh-baked bread while they were having this conversation. But then he thought about what he did know. What he does know is the Word of God. And here's the enemy of God telling him that he could take a shortcut to something easy to solve his problem and Jesus remembers and he answers instead and quotes the word of God. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was enticed. He was desiring. But instead of moving from, I want this so bad, I want this more than what God says, he landed on, I'm going to stick with what God says. So he was tempted And yet he did not sin. The temptation is real for Jesus, just as real for him as it is for you and me, is what Hebrews says. He is tempted in the same way we are. But he countered it with the word of God, with truth, and with faith, with the belief that God's way is better. And it's so important that we understand the truth about temptation. Temptation is not a sin. It's not. And so many of us lose the battle right there. We believe it is because we haven't thought it through. We haven't understood it. And so we experience temptation. We're walking down the oval, attractive girl. And we look and we're like, wow. Well... Too late. I might as well stare now. I've already lost the battle. I might as well indulge. 
one of the number one ways we lose the battle to temptation is we believe that the battle is already lost. And that's the perfect strategy of an enemy is to get you demoralized before you're even on the battlefield thinking you already lost the war. The thought, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whether it's anger, whether it's selfishness, whatever it is, the thought, the consideration, what do I do here, is not rebellion until we decide in our hearts to do what we know is wrong. Look at what James says again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then lust conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin kills you. And we see that played out in all these different scenarios. The picture here to think about is you're standing in a river, and it's waist high, and it's got a strong current, right? It's wanting to push you down. Now, you're trying to go upriver against the current. That's what it is to be a Christian living in the world system, is the entire world system is built to pull you away from what is good and what is right and what is of God, and the cosmos, the world system, is trying to sweep you downstream with everybody else into death and destruction, and you're moving against it. And temptation is when you feel the current pulling. It's just the world system doing what the world system does, and there are times where it feels you become consciously aware of the pull to do what's easy, but not what's good. And to feel the pull of that current is not evil, it is not wrong, it is not rebellion. What's evil and wrong in rebellion is to lift up your legs and float down the stream. It's to give up the fight. It's to lose the struggle and to surrender to what's easy. That is rebellion. When you feel tempted, that's the beginning of the battle, not the end. And it's so important that we understand that. You can feel tempted, you can feel enticed, and you can, with God's help, and the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, let it stop there, and that is victory. That is a great victory. That is not defeat. This is James's argument. This is what he wants them to understand, is the dynamics of this right here. Now, I told you we would do four case studies. So last week, my wife went out of town. <laughs> and the Bible says that it's not good for man to be alone. I have never lived by myself. I've, been, I've actually spent very little of my life alone which I think God has ordained. And so my wife is going out of town. My son's grown. He lives out of the house. And my daughter has a sleepover. And uh, I'm alone for the weekend. And I'm just sitting there. And immediately what happens in these scenarios is a checklist of horrible things that I could do and get away with flood my brain. And in this particular case, I had been on a diet for three months. I'm 44 years old. It used to be losing weight was very easy. It could lose 10 pounds a month. 
You know, I've been on a diet for three months. I was expecting I could lose 30 pounds in three months. I lost 15 pounds in three months because I'm 44. <laughs> it was all the same work with half the results. And I was just like, hmm, what horrible thing can I do to my body? <laughs> my brain just went right there. And somehow, the, 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 the forensics on this are amazing. Because somehow, what had happened was a week earlier was I had observed the groceries being put away. And my daughter, who's 16, who's very skinny and very small, is not on a diet. And I had observed Oreo ice cream being put into the fridge. <laughs> now, I really didn't think much about it. I didn't, at least that I'm aware. This hadn't been haunting me. But my wife said, Bye, honey, I'll be back in two days. Shut the door. And literally, this image popped into my head. <laughs> like, my flesh, a week earlier, had made a calculation that said, at some point, at some time, this may become an opportunity, and I'm going to file it away for the right time. And then my wife left, and like an alert popped up in my head. <laughs> that may have been in there for a week, but my wife and I are dieting, and my daughter is too small to eat two quarts of ice cream in a week. So she had been gone 10 minutes and I'm in the freezer like, there it is. <laughs> so let's run this through our dynamics of temptation. <laughs> Enticement. I'm aware that it's there. I do love ice cream, particularly Oreo ice cream. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, I've been so good. I've been so good for three months, and there's no way I'm going to gain 15 pounds back by eating a quart of ice cream. <laughs> I should reward myself with a reasonable amount, because I've been working so hard, and I can, I'm an adult, I'm a grown-up, I can go and extract a small, reasonable serving and, you know, enjoy a small amount of ice cream, that is not a problem. So I reasoned. Then that became desire. Desire was more like, I deserve a treat. <laughs> I am a good boy, and good boys deserve treats. <laughs> and no one needs to know. <laughs> so you can see the lies. Now, at this point, I believe I had not sinned. I, I think I was deep in the throes, and uh, that was coming. Lust came when I approached the freezer without a bowl, just a spoon. <laughs> Still telling myself, I'm going to just have a few bites and put it back, right? But in retrospect, this is where I failed. Like, if I'd gone with a bowl, there was hope. Just going with a spoon meant that I was lying to myself at this point, very obviously, uh, and I did not eat a reasonable amount. I ate the remaining quart of Oreo ice cream and then I disposed of the evidence. <laughs> Not just by throwing it in the trash. I dug through the trash, put it in the middle, and then put trash on top of it 
because I knew I had sinned and I did not want to be accountable or caught. Do you see how it works? Now, incidentally, uh, I also stumbled another and caused them to sin because we don't sin in a vacuum and our behavior affects others. My dog, Pandy, (laughs) has a problem with eating garbage. (laughs) And when I had shoved the garbage out of the way to put the ice cream in the middle of the garbage and then piled it back up, the door had not closed on the garbage can lid, which is supposed to keep her out. And I came down the next day and there was garbage strewn throughout the entire house. And she was sitting there with the carton of ice cream, (laughs) looking at me like this. And it was so clear. She was like, I'm so sorry. The lid was open. I mean, and I just had to be like, I get it. I totally, totally understand all of what's in that look. We're just going to pretend, we're just going to clean this up and pretend like it never happened. Temptation. How do we win? That's the question. How do we win through in this battle? James tells us, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived. My lovely brothers, do not be deceived. Don't buy the lie. Temptation is not sin. It's the beginning of the battle. God wants good things for us, and he is trustworthy. If we know that we have something available that we shouldn't have because it contravenes God's character and God's word and who he is, we can trust him. And we also need God for strength. We need him to help us through in our time of need. James 4 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee. We think I'm going to be stuck in the midst of this temptation forever. This pulling current is so bad, it's not going to go away until I pick my feet up and ride down the river. And God says, no, that's not true. Hang on and trust me. And some of us here don't even know, aren't even in a relationship with God, so we cannot grab hold of the strength of God. And it begins with this, submit therefore to God. Relent that you cannot do it on your own. You cannot change yourself. You have to invite God in. The word says, as many as received him, He gave the right to become children of God that you can lay down your rebellion and come into the open arms of your loving father and begin understanding what it is and how we're supposed to really live. And it will do you no good to try to change without him and without his power. But in him and with him and through him, 
real change is possible. We fight by not being deceived. And we resist being deceived by being transparent. By telling people what's really going on and by sharing our struggles. By living in the light and inviting others to struggle with us. We need good friends. We cannot do this on our own. We need people we can be real with, we can be open with, who are going to tell us how they fail so that we can encourage them and carry each other. We need to link arms and move upstream together. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 15 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Everybody has felt exactly like you do when you're in your worst temptation. There's a lie we love to believe. No one has ever been this tempted and succeeded. This is too strong. This current is too powerful for me. And God says, no, that's, that's the same for everyone. Hate that verse. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Oh, it's disgusting, isn't it? It takes our excuses, all of our excuses away. It's too strong. I can't do it. God says, I'm the all-powerful creator God of the universe. I speak things into being by saying, let there be light, and the stars and the sun appear, And I am also telling you, I will not let you be so tempted that you cannot say no. But with the temptation, God himself will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. If you believe that, you can be tempted and not fall. Finally, we need God's truth, the word of God. Just as Jesus clung to the word of God in the throes of his temptation. And James finishes out this section by saying, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. The exercise, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that he would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures, that we through his word, would become like him. God, it is your grace that gives us hope. We're just totally and utterly despicable and lost without you and without understanding your love for us. And we thank you that uh, you know, there, are, there are many things that we struggle with and many ways that we harm ourselves and harm others and in many ways in which we, um, we violate the purpose for which you created us, but that you are faithful when we are faithless, that you love us and that you give us hope and you give us strength and you give us the motivation to change, not through fear, but through love. And we just pray that um, we will grow up into maturity, able to trust in you, and navigate these treacherous waters. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.